Welcome to Spring Meadows Sunday School. We're continuing our study of God's attributes, his nature, his essence. And last week we looked at the attributes of goodness, mercy, and love. And today we're going to look at holiness, righteousness, and justice. And this is going to be a lesson which uses a literary device called Synonymous parallelism. Big word. I like to teach big words. But it's a literary device that, uh, where something is looked at from different perspectives, where things are repeated. And, and I'll remind you as we go through the lesson where this synonymous parallelism shows up. So let's go ahead and pray. Holy Fathers, we study your attributes, your nature, your essence. Help us to see how glorious you are and how glorious is the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, there are some passages in the Bible which are difficult to explain. And if you've spent any time reading the Bible, you've probably wondered why God allowed certain things to happen. For example, why would God completely obliterate humanity by a universal flood, except Noah and his family? Or why would God instruct the Israelites to destroy thousands of people when they moved into the Promised Land? Or why would God take the lives of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5? All they did is tell a little lie, right? Is God unfair? Listen, we will never make sense out of the Bible or life until we come to grips with this truth. God is holy. And this is number one on your handout. The Westminster Shorter Catechism question 101 asks, what is the first petition of the Lord's Prayer? And the answer is, hallowed be your name. So the first thing in our prayer is to ask God to make his name holy. When we pray hallowed be your name, we're asking God to help us to see and to understand his holiness so that we might revere, treasure, sanctify, esteem, respect, praise, and stand in awe of him in his holy name. So do you remember in Exodus 3 at the burning bush where God says to Moses, take off your sandals? Why did God say that to Moses? And the answer is, for he was on holy ground. The ground was holy because the holy God was present in the midst of the burning bush. And this is number two in your handout. R.C. Sproul says, holiness is not just an attribute of God, it is the attribute of God. It is the attribute that best describes him. It best describes him because it is used to describe, to describe all his other attributes, his holy name, his holy power, his holy justice, etc. This one word is what is celebrated before the throne of heaven. In Isaiah 6.3, we see the seraphim crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And R.C. continues, he says, When we want to emphasize something, we raise our voice. Or when we write something that we want to emphasize, we make a bold or underline it or highlight it or use all caps. He says, when the Jewish writers of the Old Testament wanted to emphasize, they repeated it. 
The Bible never says that God is love, 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 or that He's merciful, 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 or that He's great, great, great. What it does say is that God is holy, holy, holy. Now, it's been customary to define holy as purity, free from every stain, holy, perfect, and immaculate in every detail. So purity is the first word most of us think of when we hear the word holy. And to be sure, the Bible does use the word holy to talk about God's moral purity, but this is usually considered a secondary word in the Bible, meaning of the word in the Bible. So when the seraphim sang their song, they were saying far more than God is purity, purity, purity. This is number three in your handout. The primary meaning of holiness is God's transcendent majesty, otherness, and separation. Separation from all that is not God. Holiness marks God's ontological distinction between God and His creation. Its secondary meaning is moral purity marking God's hatred of sin. So let's talk about how sin separates us from a holy God from this first aspect of holiness, His transcendent majesty. So let's look at Isaiah 6, 1-5 again. I'll read it for you. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. And above Him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two He covered His face, and with two He covered His feet. And with two he flew, and, his, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The Lord is full, the earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I, Isaiah, said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. From my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So when Isaiah viewed the unveiled holiness of God, he saw how far his sin separated him from a holy God. God is separate from all things and all creatures that are not morally perfect. God has no tolerance to anything or anyone that contradicts or opposes his nature. He is holy. And this is number four in your handout. When the Bible calls God holy, it means primarily that God is transcendently separate. Our translation for holiness comes from the Hebrew word kadosh, and I've seen that spelled a million different ways. The way I have it spelled in there is Maybe not the way you'll say it. Maybe the, the W will not be there. But the Hebrew word kadosh means to cut. So to be holy means to be cut off, to be separate. It means to be in a class of your own, distinct. Distinct from everything else that has ever existed or ever will exist. The adjective holy that we use today means separate or set apart. Um, distinct from the common or ordinary, as in holy communion or holy matrimony. God is so far above and beyond us that He is totally not like us at all. To be holy is to be other, to be separate, an infinite cut above everything else. Now let's look, 
check out another difficult pass passage. The Bible's full of them. Leviticus 10, 1 to, 1 to 3, and I'm using the uh, NASB here because I like the way it sounds better with my lesson. It says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people I will be honored. So Aaron, therefore, kept silent. So in this passage, Aaron's sons indulged in a little experimentation. They came to the altar and offered unauthorized or strange fire. God's response was immediate, dramatic, and severe. He executed them on the spot. So how do we respond to a story like this? Two of Aaron's sons fall dead. and No emotional reaction is recorded. You, you can imagine Aaron's response. I've been faithful, and this is the thanks I get. But what is significant here is Moses' reply where he says, don't you remember the commandment? By all who come near me, I will be regarded as holy. I will tolerate nothing less. This is number five on your handout. <clears throat> to say that God is holy is not only to say that he is separate from us, separate from sin, and devoted to seeking his own honor, but that is he is infinitely incomparable. He is not to be compared with anything or anyone created. He alone is the infinite and perfect God. That's why he said in Isaiah 42.8, My glory I will not give to another. It's not just that God is holy. He is, in fact, holiness itself. So holiness involves God's transcendence, majesty, the authority of sovereign power, stateliness, and grandeur. It focuses on the idea of God's sovereign, majestic will, a will that is set upon proclaiming himself to be who he truly is, God alone, who will not allow his glory to be diminished by another. Holiness is what God is. Exodus 15:11 asks, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic, in holiness, awesome in praises, working at wonders? And the answer is no one. 1 Samuel 2, 2 says, There was no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Or Isaiah 8, 13, which says, But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And that's what Isaiah experienced in his vision. Uh, and this is number six on your handout. The secondary idea of holiness is God's purity. Purity. When holiness of, is thought of in this way, it's the sense of his moral purity and his hatred of sin. It's a general term for the moral excellence of God and his freedom from all moral limitations in his moral perfection. Or as Habakkuk 1.13 says, God is of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look upon sin. 
Now, because God is holy, he cannot be indifferent to sin. He cannot pass it by with the mere exercises of his clemency. Using that old Monty My Python routine, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. You know what I mean? God doesn't do that. To dwell in God's presence, one must be holy. Revelation 21, 27, in speaking of heaven, says, Nothing impure will ever enter it. So again, only those who are holy can be in God's presence. This is number seven on your handout. As we grow in our awareness of God's holiness, what happens? We also grow in awareness of our own sin. All sin is a violation of the holiness of God. With every sin, we willfully, knowingly declare independence from Him. Declare that we want, to be, we want God to be enthroned. To declare that we want to be God in His place. To commit cosmic treason against the King of the universe. But God says in 1 Peter 1.16, Be holy, for I am holy. So, holiness also comprises God's plan for His people. But what God requires of us, we simply cannot attain on our own. Indeed, our very nature is tainted to the core with sin. So how can a holy God be reconciled to unholy people? How can the relationship between a holy God and an unholy people be restored without some gross act of injustice? The absolute innate holiness of God means that sinners have to be separated from Him unless a way can be found to make them holy. Now, how is that possible? It's possible because a way has been provided by God through the holiness and merits of the God-man, Jesus Christ. And this is number eight on your handout. At the cross, we see just how much God values His holiness. We see that God will not violate His own holiness, even in order to save the ones He loves. In Christ, we have a manifestation of the, God, of the holiness which God demands and of the holiness which God provides. provides. So last week when we were talking about mercy, we talked about the fact that Jesus went to the cross, the effect, because God loves the, those who he, whom he had chosen before the foundation of the world. Okay, so the cross is the effect his love for us is the cause, which are like the objects of God. The objects of God's love are the elect. It's the love enjoyed by Jacob, but not Esau. So at the cross, we have a vindication of God's right to impute. To, that means to count or to credit holiness to those who, of his choice, who in state and condition are not holy. Hebrews 7, 26 and 27 says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, Jesus, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for their own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. This is number nine on your handout. Unless we grasp God's holiness, we will not be amazed at his amazing grace. 
The holiness of God sits at the center of the grand narrative of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Without the holiness of God, there would be no moral law to which every human being is responsible. Without the holiness of God, there would be no divine anger with sin. Without the holiness of God, there would be no perfect son sent as an acceptable sacrifice for sin. Without the holiness of God, there would have been no vindication of the resurrection. Without the holiness of God, there would be no final defeat of Satan. And without the holiness of God, there would be no hope of a new heaven and earth where holiness will reign over us and in us forever. And this is number 10 on your handout, which is an R.C. Sproul paraphrase. He says, when you first open your eyes in heaven, you will be in the immediate presence of Christ, having been released from the bondage of sin and faith having yielded to sight. And you will gaze on his face and you will see him as he is in his unveiled glory and holiness, unveiled glory. And it will dwarf the vision that Isaiah had and you will be staggered by your increased understanding of God's transcendent holiness. Because God is holy, he always acts in a righteous manner. So let's talk about God's righteousness. Psalm 97.2 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And Psalm 145.17 says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. So though related to holiness, righteousness is nevertheless a distinct attribute of God. Holiness relates to God's separateness or purity and righteousness relates to his justice. And this is number 11 on your handout. Holy is something God is, and righteousness is something God does. Righteousness is the holy nature of God in action in relation to his justice. And this is number 12 on your handout. Obviously, righteousness has something to do with being right. In reference to God, it refers to his display his display of integrity, purity, rightness, and correctness to that which is virtuous and holy. It also means to be right in accordance to the law. The question is, and this is number 13 on your handout, what law does God have to obey? There is no law above God, but there is a law in God. The law of God is merely a reflection of his own nature. Therefore, it's inaccurate to say that God conforms to the law. It's like saying God conforms to himself. He is himself. Since God is righteous, he cannot be unrighteous, even if he tried. Righteousness is what he is and who he is. God can only do those things are within the range of his just and holy character, which means he will not make right equal wrong, nor will he act foolishly. He will not abuse his power, nor compromise his justice and holiness. God is righteous. And this is number 14 in your handout. Righteousness in God means that all he is and does is perfect and absolutely right and correct. God never makes a wrong or unrighteous decision. Righteousness is the way his holiness is displayed and expressed toward his created world. All of God's judgments are righteous and just and holy in nature. So God's righteousness is essentially his 
unswerving allegiance to his own name and his own glory. Christianity can be reduced to superficial sentimentalism unless the absolute righteousness which exists between God's holy nature and his action are made clear. This is number 15 on your handout. God doesn't do or command something because it is right. It is right because it is done or commanded by God. Righteousness does not exist independently of God as a law or a rule or a standard to which God conforms. Rather, righteousness is simply God acting and speaking. God's law is the ultimate standard of righteousness. So, and this is number 16 on your handout. When the Bible speaks of man's righteousness, it has to do with man's conformity to God's holiness. So God not only requires holiness in us, he also requires the fruit of holiness, which is righteousness. So you could say the, the opposite of righteousness is sin. Romans 3.10 says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Romans 3, 5 to 6 says, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? By no means. For then how could God judge the world? So if God requires perfect righteousness and perfect holiness from us to serve his perfect judgment, then again we have a serious problem. This is our synonymous parallelism. We have problems stacked up upon each other. I was telling Terry on the, on the way to church this morning that it really reminds me of this uh, PBS animated series for children called Peg Plus Cat, where they're using mathematics and they have a problem. And Peg says, we have a really serious problem. And then eventually they solve the problem, and at the end they sing, problem solved, problem solved. We have a problem, problem solved. We do. We have a real serious problem. God requires perfect righteousness from man, but man in his fallen state falls short. The only hope of salvation is to have righteousness the same as God's. And this is number 17 on your handout. Hopefully you see that counting on our own righteousness is hopeless. So we flee to another righteousness, an alien, an alien from the outside righteousness, a righteousness not our own. And the only place such perfect righteousness can be found is in Christ, and that is the good news of the gospel. It is an alien righteousness that God credits or imputes to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, for me, he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And a major theme in the book of, of Romans is righteousness. For example, in Romans 3, 21 to 26, it says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God, this is what it bears witness to, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace 
as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. So in that passage, it might be better if you read it yourself, God's righteousness is at stake in that passage. His name or honor must be vindicated. And this is number 18 on your handout. Before the cross can be for our sake, it must be for God's sake. Romans 3, 25, 26 says that he sent his son to die for us to show his righteousness. It was to prove that at the present time that he himself is righteous. God would be unrighteous if he passed over sins as though the value of his glory were nothing. So the accomplishment of our salvation does not center on us, but God's glory. The vindication of God's glory is the ground of our salvation and the exaltation of God's glory is the goal of our salvation. Paul says the death of God's Son is not only the full demonstration of God's righteousness, but is what makes it possible for us to be considered righteous, to have an alien righteousness imputed to us, to be declared to be just like Jesus. Philippians 3.9 says, to be found in him, not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that what comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So again, it comes through faith, not works. Romans 4, 5 says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith as counted as righteousness. Romans 5, 17 says, For if because of one man's trespass, he's talking about Adam here, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Therefore, as condemnation, uh, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. And so the cross is a manifestation of Christ's righteousness. Adam's failure to reproduce righteousness because of his sin led to our condemnation. And because of Jesus' righteousness, believers are counted as righteous too. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. So again, only those chosen by God and called to faith through the gospel believe the promise. Those not chosen willfully remain in their sins, counting upon the righteousness of their own good works to justify themselves on the last day. Those who seek and hunger for God's righteousness receive what they desire not those who were confident of their own righteousness. And this is called the doctrine of imputed righteousness, and this is number 19 on your handout. 
The doctrine of imputed righteousness states that the righteousness of Christ is imputed. It's counted to believers. That is, treated as if it were theirs through faith. Faith. This means that God credits the believer with Christ's righteousness. So it's on the basis of this alien from the outside righteousness that God accepts us. This acceptance is also referred to as justification. So this doctrine is practically synonymous with the concept of justification by faith is. And that's what justification is. Justification is being declared righteous. It's a declaration. That's what, that's what justification is. This is number 20 on your handout. Protestants believe that righteousness is imputed to the believer, not infused into the believer as the Roman Catholic Church does. That justification is a declaration of righteousness made by God regarding human beings. This counters the Catholic notion that justification was God's action of making someone righteous by infusing grace into them. Justification is being declared righteous, not being made righteous. Now, to uh, elaborate on some previous discussions we've had, it is incorrect to maintain that Christ's righteousness is the result of his divine nature. No, that is a complete misconception of Christ's mediatorial work, which was meant to be that which was due from a true man. And it's directly related to the, what the first man, Adam, should have produced. The righteousness that God requires is that which was required from man as man, and which Christ, in assumed flesh as our mediator, as our substitute, met that requirement. Okay, so let's talk about justice. This is number 21 on your handout. This lesson is moving along very quickly, so load up your questions. We'll have plenty of time. This is number 21 on your handout. In righteousness, God reveals chiefly his love of holiness. In justice, chiefly his hatred of sin. Righteousness is the principle of divine integrity, while justice is the function of divine integrity. Therefore, what the righteousness of God demands, his justice satisfies. His justice satisfies. So, Last week, we learned that mercy is not getting what you deserve. And we also learned that the opposite of mercy is justice, which is getting what you deserve. And it, justice is that attribute where God gives to everyone what they have earned or merited. The dictionary defines justice as the administration of what is just and the assignment of merited rewards or punishments. And just means being in conformity with what is morally upright or good. And from God's perspective, that's being in conformity with him. This is number 22 on your handout. The justice of God is the outworking of his divine holiness. Holiness in regard to his hatred of sin in which all human actions will be finally judged. The justice of God is a necessary correlate of his holiness, and a correlate is 
a connection where one thing affects another. And these are all correlates of each other here. It's, hopefully you can see that's why it's a lesson in synonymous parallelism. Um, Justice refers to the fact that God establishes standards for his moral creatures that are in conformity to the standards of his own holy nature. And he judges moral creatures by the conformity to those standards. This is number 23 in your handout. All of God's reasons for doing anything come from within him. They do not come from outside of him. If God had to yield to something outside of him, he would not be God. He would not be a-se. That's two words. A space S-E. We learned that in the doctrine of the attribute of divine aseity, where God is self-contained. He's from himself. He doesn't depend on anything outside of himself, okay? Um, so he has to be a-se. God gives a law that conforms with his nature and his justice is never divorced from his righteousness. He never condemns the innocent. He never clears the guilty. He never punishes with undue severity. He never fails to reward righteousness. His justice is a perfect justice. And because God is just, he will satisfy the claims of his justice. And there are only two ways this can happen. Either justice will be paid by the actual sinner who transgresses God, or it will be paid in full by another who stands in the sinner's place. We have a really big problem. So God had to redeem man in a way consistent with his justice, but how does God do this? God doesn't justify us by waving his magic wand over us and deciding to whitewash our faults. He can't overlook the smallest speck of our sin. He demands justice for all of our iniquities. We are saved not by the removal of justice, but by the satisfaction of it. His solution is Jesus Christ, who in human flesh fulfills all righteousness. He loved us so much that despite the fact that our sin demands our death, he sent his son to be our substitute upon the cross demonstrating that his justice was not violated, but satisfied. This is number 24 on your handout. How did God pour out his justice on his sinless son? By imputing our iniquities upon him, upon the son. Because our sins were imputed to Christ, the abundance of the Father's mercy, justification and eternal life, was poured upon us, even though we were guilty and worthy of damnation. And this is what Martin Luther called the happy exchange. I exchange my sin for Jesus' righteousness, and I exchange justice for mercy. Again, 2 Corinthians 5.2, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So in Jesus, God provided a way to show mercy without doing away with justice. This is called redemptive justice. We've looked at redeeming justice. 
We have not. This is redeeming justice. Redemptive justice has to do with God's works of justification by faith alone in Christ's redemptive work on the cross. Redeem means to buy back. To buy back. To recover ownership of something by paying a specified sum. Does God simply look the other way at our sin? No. Believers are redeemed by the sufficiency of Christ's satisfaction to God's justice. Romans 3, 21 to 31 says, well, I'm not going to read the whole thing. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus Christ alone can stand in a sinner's place and receive the punishment that the sinner deserves because he's both truly man and truly God. If we don't trust him to satisfy God's justice for us, then we will have to endure the full brunt of God's wrath ourselves. That's called retributive justice. Retribute, this is number 26 on your handout. Retributive justice is that aspect of justice where God gives retribution, payment or payback for the righteousness he requires of his creatures. The word retrib retribute means to pay back. So you can either have a buyback or you can have a payback. Retributive justice is God judging the world in righteousness. Retributive justice is where God inflicts penalties for failure to conform to his righteousness. Where God treats everybody according to their merit, what they deserve. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So retributive justice is somewhat synonymous with punishment. And this is a necessary expression of God's reaction to sin and evil in light of his holiness. Retributive justice, i.e. punishment for sin, is a matter of debt. It's debt. It's something we owe. It's something from, from which God cannot refrain from doing or he would violate the righteousness of his nature. Sin must be punished. And it's a serious misunderstanding of Christianity and the nature of forgiveness to say that believers are those whose guilt of sin, whose guilt is rescinded or invalidated or ignored, and those whose sins are not punished. Our guilt and sin were fully imputed to our substitute, Jesus, who suffered the retributive justice in our place. And so in conclusion, I hope you can see how closely related are the attributes of holiness, righteousness, and justice. And to paraphrase R.C. Sproul again here, a holy and righteous God is both just and merciful. He is never unjust. But we should thank him every night that he knows how to be non-just. That's a word R.C. Sproul made up. Because mercy is non-justice. It is never injustice. We live by grace, by his mercy. And one day, even Satan himself and every man and woman will bow their knees and acknowledge that God is just in all his ways. 
Philippians 2, 10 and 11 says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And that's the lesson. Any questions? Yes. Imputed? Yeah. That's called the great exchange. When G it's imputed because of Christ. It's infused. It means righteousness, they're made righteousness. It's infused. Well, no, they do sin again because that's why they go to confession. That's why they, well, I don't know. Maybe, Dave, do you got an answer to that? to uh, understand the difference between our view of grace and the Catholic view. The Catholics would understand grace as a substance, so grace, it, whereas we view it as a, a, a concept and then a declaration. And so if you do believe that grace is a substance, then to the, that infusion is almost like you, we take on the flavor of grace, right? That's, that's, the, that's the Catholic view. That grace is something that is is apart from us, but is a a um, I can't think of another word besides substance. It's a thing that exists, right? Uh, whereas grace in the in the reformed view is a it's, it's a, a judicial concept. It's a judicial concept. We are declared a, righteous. Yes. So. Does that make mo more sense? Is that interestingly enough? I read this. I didn't make it part of my lesson, and I I'm not real sure about how certain this concept is, but. Arminians believe that righteousness is not the imputed righteousness of Christ. They, re they believe it's a result of their faith. They believe that their faith gives them righteousness, not necessarily, so I don't know, it's just kind of different views of righteousness. Do you have something to say on that, Tim? Well, I was going to say, if faith is our righteousness, then we're saved by works. <laughs> Amen, brother. <laughs> See, and that really is the whole concept of this. This whole thing is about the concept of grace and mercy, you know, where God's holiness, his righteousness, and his justice are all satisfied in Christ, which is imputed to us. Any other questions? Yes. Rick. Six is purity. Eight is provides. The holiness God demands is the holiness which God provides. Okay? Let's go ahead and close prayer. We, Father, we thank you that you are so glorious that... Um, in your transcendent majesty that you have found a way to love us and that you have found a way to solve the problems of our lack of holiness and righteousness. And we thank you for Jesus, Lord. We thank you that he satisfied your requirement for holiness and righteousness and that he took the punishment for our sin. Uh, may we be amazed by your love and your grace for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.